Hi everyone, my name is Melissa Lee and I'm your health coach who targets women with PCOS and women in general who wants to achieve stubborn weight loss. I do my best work when I work with PCOS urban women in their 30s who are embarrassed about their weight but want to feel comfortable in their bodies and are able to lose stubborn weight naturally. In this podcast, we talk about various topics including why stubborn weight loss is so hard to achieve. If this is you, definitely put this in your podcast list because one episode will be released every single week. Hi everyone, let me introduce you to our guest today, Julie Dillon. Julie discovered through her clients that diets do not work in the long term and it sets us up for plenty of guilt, negative emotions, low self-esteem and confidence and simply does not work. Julie began her work with eating disorders and realized a better way of approaching our relationship with food without associating it with the pursuit of weight loss. I'm excited to have her on today to dive deeper into these issues, which I think are very complex and deep and is usually missing in the healing piece. So hi, Julie. Hey, Melissa. Thank you so much for asking me to be on your podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, this is really exciting. And I think as we talked before, I think your angle of perspective on you know the whole food philosophy and all that is really um, interesting and maybe you know some people don't are not even aware of it so let's just kind of go into your background like how did you you know even get into like this whole field of like realizing that diets don't work for people uh, so it's definitely a twisted, long story, but I'll give you the really um, <laughs> podcast version. Okay, <laughs> but, not the movie version. <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh, it's like a trilogy or something. <laughs> but the podcast version is I have an undergrad in dietetics and I chose to, to major in nutrition because I enjoyed science, I like teaching, and I really also wanted to be a therapist more than anything, but for some reason, dietetics was the, the major I chose. And as I started to practice as a dietitian, um, I did really normal first jobs for dietitians. You know, most of us start off in a hospital and work with adults. And I, after about a year, I started also working with children who, um, so this was in the early 2000s. And this is when um, people started really being very concerned about kids at higher weights. And so I was in clinics helping kids to lose weight and oftentimes their families too. So what I noticed after about a year of doing that is that one of two things would happen. Either um, the kids would um, not lose any weight and just feel like totally so awful or they wouldn't come back. Um, there was those random people that would lose a little bit of weight, but I noticed that it was very few and far between. So I started looking into, um, maybe this has nothing to do with the people that I'm working with. Maybe this has something to do with me. Like maybe I'm not doing this right. right. And- That's always the first place we go to anyway. We're like, oh my God, I can help you, you know? Yeah, well, yeah. you know, honestly, a lot of people were like, well, it's just because people aren't following the directions. The right. People would use the word like non-compliant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can think after like 10 or 20 people, maybe it was that, but really like a hundred people, like a hundred people really weren't following the, the like directions. I think there's something to be said about like, maybe it was me. Mm-hmm. And so I started studying um, counseling and behavioral science and um, decided to pursue a degree in counseling after all. And as I finished that, I um, just really started to get a bigger picture on how um, really the way I was working with people to promote weight change was missing the point because what I noticed happening as I started working with people with all different types of food behavior kind of issues is that 
food behaviors would be, people would be thinking about like, I want to eat less. I want to move my body more. I want to eat more fruits and vegetables. And when they weren't able to successfully do that, there would be lots of shame. But then I also would see like people at higher weight doing that. And then also people with what we would call like anorexia doing that too. Mm -hmm. But one group was like, told try harder. And another group was told, Oh, stop doing that. And I thought that was really interesting. I'm like, they're doing the same things. <laughs> Why right. is one told to try harder and one given a hug and told like, let me help you. And, um, so looking into the science behind actually like weight loss, um, interventions being not really, um, held up in science, like the evidence just wasn't there. And it helped me to look into different ways of helping people improve behavior outside of using the scale. And, you know, that took about 10 years of my career right there. So <laughs> hopefully it sums yeah. it up fast <laughs> enough, but, um, it's, it's a long journey for many people who do the work I do. But mm -hmm. what I notice now is that people are able to like, find sustainable ways to make the behaviors changes that they want to make and their health is improving long-term, which is what I've always wanted to help people do. Mm -hmm. And for you yourself, do you actually have like a story with dieting? You know, my, um, my experience with like body image and food and dieting is one that comes from lots of privilege. You know, I grew up as um, a thin cisgender white girl and um, economically we had lots of access. And so I never had to think about like, is my body wrong? Um, I think I, looking back, I'm like, I had some really typical kind of body image stuff that just felt awkward as a teen, but not anything like mm -hmm. my um, friends and colleagues um, and clients at higher weights or people who have marginalized lived experience. So um, I feel like I used to say I was really lucky, but I also was really privileged. And um, as I'm getting older, I'm now 45. I'm like, I'm getting a little teeny tip of amazing. like, <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm sleeping better now that my kids are getting older. But um, at 45, you know, it's um, the aging process has given me a little tiny experience of like, oh, this is what it feels like to not be seen as much, you know, as because mm -hmm. um, I'm rejecting like um, doing any kind of like uh, surgery on my face or I'm not coloring my hair, you know, I'm just choosing to do that kind of stuff for right now. I always say mm -hmm. I'm, I, I reserve the right to change my mind, but, <laughs> but for now I'm not going to do any of those things. And so my body image experience, um, I have more negative body image now than I did when I was growing up, but, um, something that is the wonderful perk of working with people to heal a relationship with food is it gives you the same advice, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like helping people to normalize, um, a body that maybe they don't feel at home with or um, to feel like permission to eat any kind of food, like talking to people about that. Um, I had a therapist once say like, Julie, when you give advice, you're giving it to yourself as well. So it, I think it's also protecting me along the way. Mm -hmm. um, so what is actually one misconception about dieting? I think the biggest misconception about dieting is that it's um, a healthy thing, you know, like right. dieting, um, that, and that there, there's no harm in it. That's probably two things <laughs> that it's, it's a, ultimately a healthy, harmless thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, there's risks with dieting. I don't think people talk about it enough that, um, we know that, um, we know higher weight is, has a connection with disease. Um, and like academic terms, they always talk about like it has a correlation with disease. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's causational. We don't know if higher weight causes disease, but we just know there's a relationship there. And um, 
what I know with dieting is um, dieting for most people ends up not being sustainable long-term, even if people mm -hmm. stay on the diet. And what ends up happening instead is weight cycling or you know, people's weights going up and down. And weight cycling has a causal relationship with disease, like high blood pressure, high blood sugar, high insulin levels. And you know, I specialize in helping people with PCOS. And those are like three things that people with PCOS are always really like focused on. And so, you know, that's something that really made me pause when I first started specializing in PCOS. It was like, oh wow, like I really want to help people move away from this experience um, to help promote health. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. Like a lot of, I mean, I think some women, like for example, for me, I don't really have an overweight issue, but then I also have body image, uh, you know, struggles. I feel like everybody has that, especially like with all our societal standards and like pressure, whatever. Um, it's interesting that you brought up the whole PCOS dynamic thing, like the amount of imbalance in the hormones and the insulin resistance uh, and all that really I think it's tied to the mental health aspect of like, should I cut out dairy? Should I cut out mm. gluten? You know, what should I eat? Keto diet for PCOS or not? Like, mm. there's so much of it that I've also heard from like clients or people who tell me. And all they want to know is like how they should eat for their PCOS. But I also see a lot of it is stemming from their emotions with food. So... I guess, how, how can people, you know, kind of shift their mindset about that mm -hmm. or their perspective? Yeah, I think to answer that, I would love to know a little bit more what you're talking about with like the emotions with food, like emotional mm -hmm. kind of connections to eating. Is that what you're well, referencing or something different? Well, it's kind of like, you know, uh, eating, well, I eat well today because I feel good. And then on the other days, I don't want to eat well or like you know they try to over exercise I see that a lot with PCOS mm -hmm. women mm -hmm. um and then also like I guess just trying like kind of like stabbing at like different diets in the mm -hmm. wellness industry and be like oh this must work for me no this doesn't work for me okay another one like yeah. I guess how did I get out of that it feels very like a vicious cycle Oh, that word stabbing is, I've never heard that used before, but that is like <laughs> such a great- I just thought of it, right? That, that is good. Oh, I, you know, <laughs> it just feels exactly when people describe their attempts at promoting health. Mm. Um, that's what it sounds like is just like these really urgent, like impulsive kind of tries to like do better. And um, from the outside, I know for a lot of healthcare providers, they're like, you just got to try harder and try more and you're not trying hard enough. But you know, even like hearing that word stabbing, it's like people are trying so hard to promote health. And you may not know by looking at people, but like they're trying so hard that they really want to get it right. And um, having that kind of I got to do it the right way. And there's mm -hmm. only one right way in this moment because it's going to mm -hmm. be different next time. Um, right. It can be really hard because it corners people into a space of like, there's a right or wrong. And with PCOS specifically, and I think this could, this also can be generalized for people who don't have PCOS too, but um, people with, with PCOS, there's, there's so much wisdom that the body has that it lets a person know if a way of eating is something that feels good or not. And also when there's high circulating insulin levels, like most people with PCOS end up having, um, when that's like really, really high, the, the kind of chaotic carb cravings that are always there are going to really just make a person feel terrible all the time. And 
what most people are told they have to do to like control that is cut out carbs or cut out sugar or cut out dairy. Like you were saying, like, and stabbing all over the place, cutting out things. Try this, right. Yeah. And it's going to make people feel worse, not better for most people long-term, you know? And um, so what I encourage my clients to do is kind of like, okay, let's just pause. Okay. Let's gather all the data you have data, meaning like, what have you tried? Let's list all the different diets. And when we put them on paper, it can be really helpful to be like, oh my gosh, like, look at how many I tried. <laughs> There's like 50 here and I'm not 50 years old. You know, um, <laughs> there can be, I think there is, it's really hard to just it a person is just expect, expected to keep trying no matter how hard it is. But to see that kind of data personally, I hope it informs people to know like those didn't work. It's okay to, to say that diets didn't work for you. And um, finding ways to help bring down insulin levels without dieting, which for so many people, and I would say most people with PCOS that I meet, it's first like, let's just make sure you're eating a food. Because like you said, so many people with PCOS are exercising way too much because they think they have to. And they feel awful and they'll do it anyway. <laughs> and um, so I always want to make sure like, okay, let's make sure you're actually eating enough food. And I don't care what it is in the beginning. Let's just make sure you're eating enough. And as people are eating enough food, um, my clients and I will sometimes um, pick maybe some supplements to use, or maybe they'll go to their doctor and try a couple of different medications to help bring down insulin levels. And then the really cool thing that happens is that when the body starts to be fed enough and insulin levels are coming down, the body then just knows like it, it like certain foods are going to feel really energizing and certain mm-hmm. ones are not, it becomes much clearer. And so you don't need a diet sheet. You don't need a diet plan. You know, it, for some people, it may mean less dairy. For some people, it doesn't matter at all. Like, and um, I know for me as um, a dietitian of 20 years, like I've worked with a lot of people, but I don't know what's going to help you, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like only you mm-hmm. and your body are going to know because you're the expert and you're the only one that's going to know what feels good. So I, I, when you were asking like how, like if someone eats in a certain way that feels like the way they want some days and other days, it just is not, mm-hmm. that's what I would direct them to be is like, let's not be all or nothing with it. And instead let's take a step back and pause and let's try to connect you with your body because that's going to be the way to go. Like me or any other like health provider, we're not going to know exactly what you need. Only your body knows. So it's a hard sell. I know sometimes cause it's not fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in summary, I guess what you're saying is like really being in connection with the body, um, you know, feeling taking note of like which foods make you crash, which foods Mm -hmm. make you energized. Um, And that also takes like mindfulness. I feel like not eating when you're stressed. Um, Are there any specific like tools that you give your clients to get them to be more, you know, self-aware of their body? Yeah, I think um, I I really encourage them to move away from the scale. I um, think the, especially with PCOS, the, weight or the scale is not a measure of health or progress or worth, Mm -hmm. Um, you know? And so, you know, we know with PCOS, higher circulating insulin levels make um, weight go up. That's just a part of insulin and higher circulating testosterone levels make muscle density more. So a person's going to weigh more. And so it's not going to be the same. I mean, I say this to people without PCOS too. I don't want, I want them to throw out the scale as well. And for people with PCOS, it's like even more, I'm like, get it out because (laughs) 
Um, it, when we use the scale as a measure of progress, I think it takes us out of mindfulness. It takes us out of our body and being expert of our body. We rely on this hunk of metal. Um, Reba Sloan's a dietitian out of Tennessee, and she always says that we give that hunk of metal way more power than it deserves. And so I, I think people with PCOS do that. And I think also doctors, other healthcare providers, coaches do that too. We like just give it too much power. And um, I don't know if you've ever worked with someone who was making all these changes with their food intake and they were like, mm -hmm. I feel so much better. I feel healthier. I'm sleeping better. I feel so great when I'm exercising. And then they weigh themselves and they're like, oh my gosh, I gained weight or, oh, I didn't lose anything. And then they're like, mm -hmm. that means it wasn't right. Right. But, you know, that when that started to happen more with my clients with PCOS, that really informed my practice to move away from the scale. Um, because I was like, wait, no, no, there was something to what you were doing. Like, it's not like your health was removed, you know, mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. of that. And um, yeah, so that's, that's something that I really encourage people to do is like to just move away from that. And it, we do live in a world where people in higher weights, um, people at higher weights are considered like they're discriminated against, you know, it's something that um, weight stigma is definitely well-researched. Weight stigma also is, has a causal relationship with disease. Like it's, that's something that's really horrible in our world. And um, so I can appreciate why people are pursuing weight loss to like mm. be able to get qualify for um, reproductive medicine, you know, or mm -hmm. to um, be able to keep their job, you know, or something like that. It can just to be able to fit in a chair, you know, there's reasons why people will want to. And, um, you know, it, outside of those reasons, I mean, cause I, I, do believe like people get to choose what they want with their body. Like access to privilege is a really important thing. And um, I think focusing on the scale gets in the way of like your own ability to know what you and your body need. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Throw out the scale. I, I threw it out. A few <laughs> Let's get the ago. hammers. Oh, yeah. good. Was, good for um, you. Totally, yeah. Totally not my thing either. And like, it's not like I'm super like fat or anything, but yeah, I, I mean, I was, uh, working in a gym as a personal trainer and I actually developed a lot of body image issues mm. as a trainer in a gym it's like it seems weird but it's like such a true thing that happens I think that's probably that's really common yeah right yeah <laughs> like um yeah it's like it's like additional pressure you know it's like part of your job or anything but mm. anyway um I was when you were talking all, all about you know the whole mindset piece and throwing out the scale and like kind of reverting back to like being aware of our own body is this part of like your food peace philosophy mm -hmm. okay it so is. could you tell yeah. us more about that yeah so uh, the food peace journey is the process that my clients with PCOS go through to help heal their relationship with food and also promote health, whatever that looks like for them. And it's, it's a journey, honestly, that is not like, there's not like a final destination, especially because we do live in a world that is fat phobic. So if we lived in a world where all bodies will were celebrated no matter what, I think it would be a lot it would be more of like finite time of like, yeah, it's just a, you go, you do these steps and then you're done, but it's not like that. So um, it's a, it's a process of examining, you know, um, the beginning kind of starts with examining your diet history. Like I was talking about before mm -hmm. and um, getting to the place where we call it respect. You know, it's, it's in a place of like, well, okay, I diets haven't worked for me. And 
it's going to be hard to not diet, but to respect my body, I'm going to move away from diets for right now. And as people go through that step, there's often a lot of anger that happens of like, oh my gosh, like I was given these tools that never were, that no research has ever shown that they work. You know, there's no diet that works long-term for most people. So why were they always just the, what was given to me for PCOS? And um, with that kind of realization, most people I work with are really, really angry. And um, that, st that stage of the food peace journey, I call it release. I think it's really important to like fuel, <laughs> like moving ahead of like, you know, this wasn't your fault. Like PCOS is not your fault. And the fact that the diets didn't work were not your fault. Um, people are given really, really crappy tools that mm. don't work. And it's rooted in that fat phobia. So from there, it's um, coming home to the body then and, and figuring out um, what you need in order to repair your relationship with food. So for a lot of clients I work with, um, this repair work looks like listening to the messages in their brain. Like um, I have some clients who will say like, oh, I shouldn't eat after seven. And a lot of times my clients with PCOS need to eat before bed. Like they need to, in order to sleep well, to keep their insulin levels down at night. Um, and so they, what we'll try to do is rewrite those kind of rules of like, um, my body doesn't know when the sun sets and rises again. Like when I need to eat, I need to eat, you know, I'm okay. um, trying to rewrite those kind of rules. And as time goes on, I really hope people, when they're doing this individual work, they realize that we all need to really rally together. And that's one, another step in the food peace journey is like finding other people who are rejecting diets because it's not like an individual's burden because um, again, because the, there's so many systems against um, higher weight bodies and other marginalized bodies too, that we all need to come together and um, mm -hmm. change it. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that sounds like a really nice kind of, place to work towards too right and I think in the beginning it's gonna be extremely hard it sounds oh, extremely yeah. hard yeah already um do you find that you know people like I wouldn't want to say the word relapse but do you find like you know that they are like progressing and then they kind of like revert back to like the old ways of thinking mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for sure mm -hmm. um I, when I think of like the word relapse what I think about is um the craving to diet again. Um, the the many people I work with, they'll come in saying they feel like addicted to food, or they 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 emotionally eat or binge eat. And so, as we're working together, as they're moving from dieting, they'll find that they don't use those words to describe them their relationship with food anymore. Mm -hmm. But then something will happen where they don't feel at home in their skin. They may go to like a family reunion, or they may not get a job that they were the most qualified for. Something will happen and make them just not feel okay in their skin and the craving to diet will pop up. And um, that's a really normal thing again, cause we don't live in a world that is yeah, okay with that. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's a part of the food peace journey is building up the compassion for that craving and to notice when it happens. And, you know, again, looking at a person's diet history, I want that data to be like documented so they can be like, okay, so I'm wanting to try keto again. Um, how many times have I tried it? Oh, six. I've tried it six times, once for a whole year. And <laughs> look what happened, you know. Um, and to kind of inform, like, yes, maybe my aunt said it's the thing I should be doing, 
but is it really the silver bullet? What is this? What am I really wanting when I'm craving that weight change? And for a lot of people, what they're craving when they want that weight change is they're wanting um, to just feel like accepted. You know, they just mm-hmm. want to feel like they have clothes that fit or an airline seat that fits. Um, and so that's not about the person, you know, that's really about society's also when you're talking (laughs) yeah when you're describing that it sounds like um they go back to dieting because they feel like that's the only thing they can control Mm -hmm. about their lives or do you do you find that too like i feel like they want to take back control like okay i want to you know i want to make sure that i eat this way or whatever like Mm -hmm. yeah i think um dieting is something that we're taught to use to better ourselves. And I think it's also in a way kind of a form of gaslighting, like it'll make you better, it'll make you healthier. But really what it does is it makes us smaller in like a figurative sense, you know, gives us less of a voice because we're distracted because we're hungry. And and so when we're dieting, I think it's also like I'm following the rules, I'm being good. And we all want to be good, you know, we want to like be like, not it's exhausting to have to be radical and i say this coming from lots of privilege like my clients who are living in fat bodies like not dieting is so radical and i will never understand that but like the way my clients describe it is sounds so exhausting to have to always be this like radical person and so to be dieting again is a way to like just get that pressure off you know, Mm -hmm. and to not have to deal too. I think sometimes it can be a form of control, but I hesitate to say that sometimes because I think it sounds more like it's the individual's fault when I feel like it's so much more systemic Mm -hmm. um, than an individual's kind of responsibility. And I, cause I think it, I don't think as many people would struggle with it as they do if it was just the control, you know, right? a piece of it, but I think it's Mm -hmm. also like not all, all of it, you know? Mm, I understand what you're saying like a bigger picture um you know we're influenced by like media and like yeah culture and all that oh Mm -hmm. that's interesting yeah it's it kind of is um I don't know like a buzzkill it's kind of like ah it's such a big (laughs) thing you know um and it's not going away anytime soon and yet it's still there I don't know and um, so it's not, that's why it's like, it's not this like pretty kind of like solution, you know, moving away from diets and healing relationship with food is an ongoing thing forever. <laughs> yeah. Know? Right. So on that note, like if I know, if I notice someone in my family or friend or someone that I know that is kind of like, it seems like she's struggling from an eating disorder, how do I approach her? Mm-hmm. And on that note, how can we bring more awareness about eating disorders to like people we know? Yeah. I think that's really important because um, when I first started working with eating disorders 20 years ago, I was like, before I started my first day at this job, I remember being like, okay, I'm going to be working with a bunch of really rich, skinny, white teenagers. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, so that's um, error number one. You know, um, I think it's important for us to know that like eating disorders do not discriminate. Um, Christina Johnson's a dietitian out of Texas who says that a lot, like eating disorders do not discriminate. And um, I think we need to know that like anybody can have an eating disorder. And um, I've worked with people who 
um, our higher weights who are in the throes of anorexia, but we always associate anorexia with being in a really, really small body right. that, that nobody knows that they're like on death's door, mm-hmm. but it happens a lot. Um, so that would be the first thing is like just acknowledging that it doesn't matter what your gender is, your race is, what your size is, how old you are. Anybody can experience it. And if someone in your family, um, if you notice that their relationship with food is just you can just tell it has way more power than it should. Um, one of the things that people have told me who've been approached by family members before, I've heard of like what not to do a lot. Like don't mention that their body size, whether they're at higher or lower weight. <laughs> don't mention anything about how they look like. Don't say you look terrible. Don't ever say that. Um, instead, you know, just acknowledging like, it sounds like you're having a hard time right now. It's, um, you know, whenever we have um, cookouts, I notice that you don't come. Um, mm. Or when we go out to restaurants, I notice you're not there or you never want to eat with us. Or it seems like you don't feel good a lot um, or you're just gone a lot and I miss seeing you. Um, or it, sound, it looks like you're down a lot, you know, instead right. of about okay. um, appearance, because mm. that's really what it's about, right? Is like, you want your family member or friend to be happy and safe And you want to communicate that you're noticing that they're not happy or safe. Right. Yeah. And not bringing in the appearance piece. Yeah. Because that just is a double shame. Like people who are in the throes of eating disorders have so much shame. It's like they're wrapped up in a blanket of shame. (laughs) So like just Mm -hmm. saying that is just going to make that so much worse. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah. And and when we're really close to someone, we're past that kind of stuff. We love them as a person. And so we notice that there's a hole somewhere, you know, and we want yeah. to fill that hole. And so um, how can we help people to see that? And, and also if you're wanting to talk to someone that you think may be in the throes of an eating disorder, always, always, always talk to them in private, not in front of other people. Make sure you plan it out, like, meaning don't make it impulsive. <laughs> like if you have a fight or something, you're like, right. I think you're in the throes of an eating disorder. <laughs> oh um, my God. Uh-huh. I, I've heard lots of stories, but, um, so yeah, make sure it's in private and then also be ready to help that person with some resources. Um, you know, maybe, maybe it's some people that you research in your area that specialize in it. And then also like be prepared to not have it as a one and done conversation. Most people like eating disorder recovery on average is four to seven years. And if someone has something more like binge eating disorder or they're at a higher weight body, it can be twice that long. Mm-hmm. And so you know, be in it for the long haul. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. It does sound like that. I would like to take a quick break from the podcast to talk to you about Osea Malibu. Osea is a skincare brand that is safe and non-toxic. It is made in Malibu, California. The brand uses formulations from seaweed blended with pure essential oils. I stumbled upon Osea at a wellness event and I could not be happier with their ocean cleanser. I love it because it is so hydrating, it is light, it does not give me any breakouts, um, it is great for just clarifying the skin. The brand is vegan and gluten-free, obtaining ingredients from plant-based sources. They use three main kinds of algae from the ocean, and my favorite is obviously the Osea Cleanser. So for every purchase of $40 and more, you can add a travel size product worth $18 of value to your cart for free with the use of the code NOURISHMELL. So just to repeat, you have to use the code NOURISHMELL 
and add a travel size product to your cart on every purchase of $40 and more. Do you advocate um, journaling as part of like the healing process? You know, I think it depends on the person. For some people, um, journaling, and you know, as a dietitian, when I think of journaling, the first thing I think of is like a food journal. Right. Which, okay. you know, for some people that can be really helpful, um, especially like, oh my gosh, yeah, I don't eat that much. Or mm -hmm. um, I don't remember doing that. You know, it, it can just bring an awareness. Mm -hmm. And for some people, they find it triggering. Like, oh, it feels like I'm eating too much. And um, the biggest part of my healing work with clients is permission and compassion. And so if something is taking away permission, then I'm taking it out. <laughs> but journaling, like exploring what your messages are in your brain or how you're feeling in your body or what helps and what doesn't help. Um, I know for me, when I do my own therapy, I don't really like journaling. It does, it's not my thing. So I always tell my clients, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to recommend something to you that I wouldn't do myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, um, and I say that I won't require them to do anything. I wouldn't require myself. And so some people love doing that work. They love journaling and that's just how their brain is. And I'm just not one of those people. So I don't make people. So I don't know. I kind of gave you an answer without really giving you an answer. I appreciate it. That's my answer. <laughs> no, you didn't. You, you did give me an answer. It just sounds okay. like, you know, it's by individual and you Very don't, give, you don't yeah. um, whatever, like you don't get your clients to do it because you don't do it. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So there, yeah, they're like, I find that sometimes it's like a big barrier to um, talk about it with mm -hmm. not only clients, but people. Um, and yes, you know, a lot of them, they do have shame around it. And I guess the best way is to expose that shame, but then it's like mm -hmm. a really hard journey to even get to that place of exposing. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you have like a blueprint, like a layout, but I guess like a lot of it from what you're saying is a lot of like mindfulness, uh, being like writing down all your beliefs, writing down all the diets you've tried. Um, is there anything else that is, you know, kind of, will kind of like help them heal from this? Yeah, because those two things you mentioned, I feel like come more later. Right. And, you know, I, I just mentioned like permission and compassion. That's mm -hmm. really what I start with is, you know, how just people with PCOS, again, that's the majority of people I work with experience yeah. that condition. And um, so many people with that will have these intense carb cravings and they may binge eat or emotionally eat or feel addicted to food and feel so much shame about it. And my job is there dietitian, um, I know is to give people permission to be where they are, because if, if we're given tools to manage the PCOS that are just going to enhance carb cravings, cause that's what diets will do. Um, then of course that's, what's going to happen like that and teaching the physiology behind that. Like that's just you being a successful human. <laughs> you know, that's what our physiology does when it thinks it's starving on a deserted Island is it obsesses about food because it wants you to go find it. And, um, and then there's times where people will describe a, a history of food or um, a relationship that crossed boundaries. They may have been experienced a trauma of some sort in dieting or, or binging or something like that may have been something that helped them to disconnect or totally numb out. And what a great tool, right? Like mm -hmm. to be able to survive a trauma however you can that you can still drive a car. Like if you're binge eating, you can still drive a car. Like it's yeah, not totally. alcohol, it's not drugs. Like this mm -hmm. is something that helped you to survive. And um, 
in order for someone to heal from trauma, we need to help people have other tools that work before we take away one that is not what they want anymore. So, um, and I also think like, cause food is, um, required to be alive. <laughs> it's like taking away oxygen. No, we're not going to do that. Yeah. Um, so food is always going to have an emotional component. And so that's where if there's like an all or nothing kind of reaction, it can get sticky because normal eating has emotional eating as a part of it. And mm-hmm. um, so people are still going to experience that. So that's why the, the first few months, sometimes even a year is like, working on permission to be where they are. Mm. And you're right. The shame piece is so heavy. It's so hard to like crack into and to like examine. Um, and it, cause it's there for a reason, you know, and, yeah. um, to dismantle it, we really need to give people tools to feel okay where they are right now. And, um, and then slowly as people feel more at home in their body, that's when, um, they can really look at that shame and be like, Oh, Oh, that wasn't my fault. Like, like, why am I carrying this? Let's get rid yeah. of that, you know? Yeah. Which is journaling can help people do that. But if they feel so ashamed of, of themselves, why would they want to like look at that pain, you know? Right. Yeah. Wow. So many uh, great tools here and great information. Um, is there anything else that you want to just kind of address like the whole PCOS and eating disorders and body image issues? Are there any like, you know, myths or important things that women should take note of? I always think it's important for people with PCOS to know that they didn't cause the condition. Like Mm -hmm. so many people think that it's their fault, which is ridiculous because we've known for a really long time that it's passed down through families. And so anyone listening with PCOS, you didn't cause it. It doesn't matter what you ate, how much you weigh, um, or weighed at one point. It doesn't matter. You didn't cause your PCOS. It's not your fault. And if you can't stay on a diet, that also is not your fault because they don't work for most people. So, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, that's the, those are the really, really big things that I wish everyone with PCOS knew. And um, they really deserve more research than we have. For as many people who have this condition, like there should be so much more information than we have. Yeah, totally. And I feel like because it involves like the whole emotional aspect and the mental health aspect, mm-hmm. like that's always hard to find like research or anything. Cause it's yeah. Like, and it's ovaries, right? Like, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's a, it's a <laughs> women's health issue. So people are like, ah, you know, why we want to fund that. Yeah, yeah there's, exactly. there is psychological consequences to PCOS. And so many people talk about like, they feel like so many things are just in their head. Mm-hmm. And, um, it always surprises me because, you know, I don't have PCOS, but I've had the privilege of sitting across people for about 15 years with it. Mm-hmm. And so it's really easy to pick up themes of like things people have been through with it. Like, of course, the infertility, but also like the carb cravings and the poor sleep and anxiety, depression. Um, you know, there's lots of like common consequences to it. And my clients will be like, I didn't know those cravings were because of the PCOS. I'm like, Huh? Why? Wait, why don't you know that? Not, not that it's that person's fault, but it's just like, why is that not common knowledge yet? And to like harness like, oh, if I can just figure out how to manage this PCOS, it'll help me like be in a level playing field with everybody else, basically, you know? Yeah. I like what you said about the whole interconnected uh, connectedness. Um, I think when we view our bodies or even our life or whatever we feel, it's always very segmented. Like, oh, I have mood swings. That's normal. It's not yeah. PCOS, you know, right? Yeah. Like, oh, I feel I have like what water retention today or there's like mm. 
I think there needs to be more uh, focus on like, oh, this could be, you know, based on your PCOS, based on your hormones. Yes. So there needs to be more connection there. I feel like there's too much like categorized, you know. Like. Right. Yeah, we forget that it affects every cell of the body, mm-hmm. you know, because yeah. if by having the hormonal imbalance, it's going to affect every cell in the body. So like, yeah, like the hair dry eye, <laughs> fatigue, sleep yeah. disorder. I'm like all these things, like it seems like they're not related, but they are all connected together. Um, yeah. And, and I think a person not feeling like ashamed of all of it is a really great start. So then people can advocate for themselves to get better healthcare. Yes, I agree. Wow. So that was a really nice conversation. I'm so glad to have you on board. So if people want to find out more about your work, where can they find you? The easiest place to find me is on my website. It's juliedillonrd.com. And um, you can get connected there to my online courses that I have for people with PCOS. And um, I'm most active on Instagram. So you can also find me at Food Peace Dietitian, where I think is where we connected is on Instagram, right? So um, mm. I think so. I don't know. I maybe think not. so. I actually don't remember. <laughs> I think I found you on a website though. No, someone right? told me about you. Oh, that's cool. I don't remember now. Yeah, someone yeah. told me about you, but well, that's yes, cool. Thank I'm, you I'm for that. I'll follow you anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my website has all that though. So juliedillonrd.com is the mm-hmm. best place to go. Nice. Well, thank you so much for your time. That was great. I think I also felt like information not only as like you know like a friend or a family member, but also how to help my clients. Oh, and good. I think the one main takeaway is just you know to be mindful, to be self-compassionate, uh, to just accept and also not think that PCOS is your fault. Yes. I feel like those are the main takeaways. Good. Good. That's what I'm hoping. Those are like, I hope that helps whoever's listening. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Melissa.